Jonathan, uh, it's so wonderful to see you. Hello. It's great to be back. I think, is this the third or the fourth one uh, of these we've done? I think it's the third. And uh, it's a huge privilege to be back here um, with such an amazing audience as well. And, of course, the fun never stops, does it, with Russia? There's always something to talk about. Absolutely. That is so, so true. And I, I just learned that you are here the third time. I'm going to listen to the previous interviews. But I only caught one in the past. And I have to say, I got totally hooked. I'm very much hooked on Maria Report, of course. But uh, in very rare moments, when I'm not listening to Maria Report, now I'm listening to the Silicon Curtain. We've got a fantastic one, which I'm pushing live. This is a week where... Um, often we'll have sort of Western guests and Ukrainians. This week it's all Ukrainians, 100% Ukrainian speakers uh, on the channel. Um, we had uh, Elena Holska yesterday, who's very well known, I think, in political and civil society uh, circles in Ukraine. And today the video going live is going to be Mikhail Kuleba, who um, is one of the leading figures uh, in one of Ukraine's leading charities um, called Save Ukraine. And probably... You know, a lot of people talk about returning the kidnapped children from Russia. Um, his organization is one of the few that have actually been able to put words into actions and return uh, a number of children back to Ukraine. So that is important to, 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 to make sure Ukrainian voices are, are heard. No, absolutely. And it, that is so great that you are actually platforming uh, Ukrainian voices. Hello, Axel. Good to see you again. All right. Yeah, I managed to fix the audio now. In the meantime, I can see that David is there. Jonathan, I already heard talking in the background. Jonathan, good evening. Hello there. Hello. Delightful to uh, Yeah, I was to speak again. With, I was battling with the microphone, Twitter, and the bloody phone, say all three uh, in one go, and mm -hmm. it really failed me. I apologize. In any event, so we had a chat uh, together with our friend David, who's also with us here, as to what we'd like to be uh, addressing. And it seems to me that at the moment, the Russian propaganda is the only thing which they have really have going for them, as well as the Quad support, meaning North Korea, China, and Iran supporting Russia in um, both say, arming up on the one hand, but on the other hand, trying to force the West to concede that nobody is winning. There's, there's no problem here. Nobody's winning. It's, it's quite strange. Uh, this narrative, which has uh, emanated from Russia, needs to be dissected. Uh, why don't we have mm. a go at it? Let's do it, because as ever, Russia does not necessarily originate the narratives. It's too much to say, okay, Russia invented all of the problems in the world. That's not exactly how it works, but it will pick up on uh, phrases like stalemate. Uh, it'll pick up on phrases like frozen conflict. And if it serves their interests, it will seek to amplify uh, and distribute those narratives around through, you know, useful idiots that we're all aware of, uh, but also seek to try and amplify that and get it into the mainstream media. And I think the one about stalemate and the one we hear endlessly about frozen conflict benefit uh, the Kremlin um, because, one, they create the impression that the threat is not, ne not necessarily existential to Europe and the US. If the conflict is frozen in Ukraine, well, one, Ukraine's not going to disappear. Well, that's great. We don't have to worry so much about funding and arming it. We don't have to worry about this tricky topic of retaking Crimea and Donbass, etc., because 
that's really problematic. We'll come on to that in a minute. Um, but we can we can stop worrying about this thing because it'll just sit quietly and fester in the background as a frozen conflict. Now, it's my belief um, that Russia has no intention of freezing the conflict. It has the intention of starting fires all over the place. And if it can, uh, take Ukraine entirely and then move on to the next morsel, you know, like a black hole. It's always hungry, always looking to suck something else in. But these are narratives that are useful to its purpose because they sow either despair or inaction or indifference um, in in its target audience. So over to you, Axel. Does that uh, yeah, ring true? Absolutely. I mean, for them, it's like literally riding riding the stream of information. They are uh, never necessarily, as you just highlighted, only originating and placing information or creating narratives, but it's easier for them to employ crises, employ weaknesses and um, dissect them. But unfortunately, it's like a good doctor uh, identifies by means of good symptoms, analysis and tests, uh, <clears throat> what to do and whether you can, he can assist. They are the ones who, if they find a symptom or if they find a weakness, they literally place an infectious disease there. And we, we hold Ukraine to different standards, unfortunately. I mean, the First World War, I mean, the lines of contact barely changed, uh, certainly on the Western Front, uh, once they settled down into trench warfare. And yet you had four years of bloodletting and massive changes behind the facade uh, that then led to, you know, various revolutions in, in Russia, um, Germany, Central Europe. So you have these huge movements and changes beneath the surface under the so-called frozen conflict. And, of course, millions of people died at the same time. So a stalemate can hide a vast amount of activity. The challenge, I think, here with the Russian narratives is, and I just literally, I'm calling you guys from a pub. Uh, it's a very pleasant pub in Oxfordshire. Um, I won't say the exact location in case, you know, there's a Russian agent nearby. But I've just met a journalist who's come back from Kiev. And he was hoping to have all sorts of meetings with people when he was there. And he told me he was shocked. There are almost no permanent journalists now that he could find in Kiev to, to talk to. It's almost as if that whole thing's been wound down. And a lot of the reporting we get are either people who are sort of flown in temporarily to file their stories and whatever and flown out again, um, or they're the kind of old hands, or the old soaks uh, like John Sweeney who are committed to the cause, you know, people who've almost abandoned traditional journalism and, uh, and have, have gone all in, as it were, gone native. So it's easier, perhaps, for these simplistic uh, propaganda narratives to cut through when there are far, far fewer journalists on the ground, apart from Ukrainians, but again, is anyone listening to them? That's a provocative question I want to throw out there. Yeah, the, if you you can listen uh, to to for example U.S. media on the opinion pages of both alternative media as well as mainstream media, and you will find a lot of journalists do uh, opining on Ukraine, but they do it from the perspective of both the domestic political battle, the upcoming election campaigns, and of course budget constraints and vis-a-vis -vis how to contrast this with other crises the U.S. is facing. So. 
the distance is built into them because none of them or very few of them have on the ground experience or on the ground uh, say sources uh, it seems also that there's a disconnect between the ukrainian um, journalists themselves uh, kiev independent has failed to um, say have sufficient and substantial cooperative outreach let's put it this way there's good reasons for it but it, it is what it is and uh, the kiev post um after having you know lost a lot of its uh, journalists to, to the Kiev Independent, uh, doesn't have much either. And it's difficult to build up media operations uh, during times of war when a lot of your journalists are act actually serving in combat or as medics or in other roles within the government. That's so right, yeah. That is understand that's understandable. But your colleague, who was who there, I hope you're having a decent pint of bitter, by the way, that Oxfordshire. Uh, yes, yes, we absolutely were, yes. And... Uh... If anyone knows the area, it's the uh, it's the pub that features in the last Inspector Morse episode, uh, with a rather sort of infamous bridge there. That's probably showing my age, isn't it? I don't know <laughs> people who watch that. But then, which Oxfordshire pub hasn't featured in an episode of Morse? That's. Uh... I was just about to say, Inspector Morse. That is actually still very youngish. I mean, Roderick Aline would have been different, but there you go. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, you know, and he he, uh, he he met some of the journalistic teams that you're talking about there. And I find it fascinating that the uh, Kiev Independent is is certainly uh, observed by a lot of uh, those who are really into Ukraine, into these sort of stories. Um, the diaspora, to an extent, they've got quite a big audience amongst the diaspora. How many people who are actually, uh, you know, Ukrainian? Uh, figures, even influential figures, uh, read it. That that's an open question because most of their subscriptions and users, I think, are outside, outside the country or or a sort of you know, the, the dwindling community of uh, you know um, European and American journalists who are actually in country. So, fantastic journalism. But yes, what's what's its actual impact? That's uh, an interesting question. Definitely what's missing is the reach into Western journalism, because if you look at, um, say, platform journalism, as I may call it, uh, such as Reuters, Reuters Marketplace, which still cooperates with more, say, Kremlin-manipulated Kremlin news under the pretext of having to have on-location representation and on-location news bits, which is obviously quite insane if, you, if your on-location news bits are all fed in from one central agency such as TASS, be it TASS in Kazan or TASS in Moscow, it makes no difference. Yes. But um, the same thing applies, of course, if uh, Reuters then in its marketplace has numerous, numerous specific outlets, all of which are either associated with uh, Viktor Orban yeah. or with the current president of Bulgaria, with uh, the populist party in Romania, uh, with the hard right wing, funny enough, in Poland, as well as Mr. Fizzo in Slovakia. It is quite, quite mesmerizing, isn't it? It's quite insane that um, our friends at Reuters would manage to load up all those news sources into a marketplace, as opposed to a more, shall we say, um, a grander R. Yeah, and you have to wonder as well how many of them, uh, after the full-scale war, decided that their Moscow hub, because many of these organizations, as we know, operated out of Moscow and essentially viewed Ukraine and other countries of Central Asia 
i.e. The, the imperial targets of Russia, they still viewed them through a Moscow-centric lens and as part of Russia's sphere. Uh, they may not have uh, exactly labeled that with that sort of 19th century political concept, but they operated as if these countries uh, were part of Russia's sphere uh, and world. Um, and it's, it's become increasingly surprising that actually not all these organizations have moved away from that uh, centralized approach. And therefore, even if they don't intend to be, uh, to be biased uh, towards the Moscow lens, um, might still nonetheless uh, fall prey to that. And that, of course, includes, I think, many of the leading uh, sort of charitable sector organizations. We can come on to that uh, later as well, because that's another, that's maybe the topic for another episode, but there's a huge gap between the operations uh, that are claimed, uh, especially amongst charities, and what Ukrainians will be reporting on the ground. Uh, I remember speaking to some, uh, both reporters and volunteers on the ground after the Kohovka uh, dam uh, destruction. And uh, there were large international organizations posting images of the destruction and running media campaigns to raise funds. And yet, uh, there was none of their real infrastructure or vehicles seen anywhere near the, uh, you know, the, uh, the the pointy end, as they say. So this, I think, this Moscow lens uh, is is still a problem uh, amongst people who are running, you know, large larger networks or organisations. Some of the largest U.S. news outlets had their main hub in Moscow, specifically also the print media. Um, all of which continued to report from Moscow for quite some time and then delegated their staff to operate out of, now it comes, of course, Kiev and Paris. Mm. <laughs> quite neat. Let's put it this way. Um, they know where the food is good and where they need to be, but they still delegate the people who before have been essentially ingratiating themselves with the Moscow media elite and market. Absolutely. Let's, let's go back to that, the narrative of frozen conflict and stalemate, because up until the last couple of weeks where support and funding, we know it's coming in dribs and drabs, but it was still coming. And there wasn't this immediate sense of urgency or, or, or desperation that it might be cut off completely. Um, obviously, the, the sense, the narrative has changed uh, with, with the, um, you know, the, the, the turning of this into more of a partisan issue uh, in, in, in Congress, etc. And, and as people are really started, I think, to twig that as long as it takes is not just a throwaway phrase, but it's an unfortunate strategic choice, which is starting to go badly wrong. And, and you know, Ukraine doesn't have an endless supply of people, and it places far more value on its people than Russia does. And I think this is starting to coalesce. Um, but nonetheless, Ukrainians, generally speaking, would try to make the case of why we should save Ukraine <coughs> for Ukraine until the last couple of weeks. And I'm detecting a change in the narrative. And it's genuine. It's not, I think, uh, sort of uh, a political stance. It's not Ukrainians trying to change the narrative for propagandistic reasons. But more and more people I speak to are trying to make the case that this is not just an existential crisis 
for Ukraine. That is now inevitable, and it's a generational struggle. And I think most Ukrainians are like, this is this is going to go on for the long term. Uh, you know, whether it's at this scale of intensity or not, it's hardly likely to end. They've started to change the narrative to this is an existential crisis for you in Europe and the US. And I think that's that's an interesting kind of approach. And it'll be interesting to see how Russian propaganda tries to counteract that. Now, President Zelensky was relatively well advised and also quite smart. I mean, his English has become substantially better since the very beginning of his presidency and, of course, since the media requirements of the war. And he felt comfortable enough to be um, on one of the leading news programs with Brett Bell on Fox uh, yesterday to actually highlight as to why he uh, why he was in, in the U.S. and uh, he was asked as to um, how he dealt with internal criticism. He clearly said, "Well, people should not uh, complain; they should go and uh, help people with the front. The full focus should be on the front." Fox News also listed in the question, but he didn't address that, and Brett Baer didn't force him that because I presume he knew that his um, say showrunner had put a, a dud into this notion that elections had been postponed. Um, President Zelensky didn't, you know, go to that, stoop down to that level to discuss it. But evidently, Brett Baer put forward the, the uh, say, regular criticisms being made, being made. And Zelensky was very clear to make that moral argument, that there's a moral um, dimension to uh, defeating Russia, protecting freedom, and that Ukraine fights for the freedom and the values we all, as he said, hold dear. He also abstained from making any kind of uh, suggestions to how the U.S. should deal with its domestic politics, smartly enough. But it was interesting that the intrusion into his domestic politics he has to tolerate because he takes the money. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, he is polite enough to uh, and dignified enough to be a president. I, I suspect that that is a missed step, and he is probably quite sensitive politically to that, uh, and perhaps personally. So he brushes that over. That, however, I think is is not the way to go on Fox. You need to tackle the propaganda narratives head up, and the big ones yeah. they're trying to channel. Saying it was, yeah. he should have said the, the elections by constitution do take place in peacetime. Exactly. Constitutionally. He cannot. Yeah. Exactly. And he could have highlighted, by the way, that um, the the British did not have an election. They had by-elections. Many. I don't know how many. You had, what, 140 by-elections during the Second World War? But you Mm. did not have a general election. There was a good reason because of the dichotomy between the Tory and the Labour side during that and then the polarization at that time it was good sense of that and the americans did actually not complain about that no and it was a it was a government of national unity so it's not a, a, a partisan government i mean you have fierce debates behind the scenes we'll come to that in a minute because that's another great area for uh, russian propaganda to get its teeth into but these fierce debates behind the scenes are a natural part of uh, the sort of coalition that's run and indeed there are people in Zelensky's government who are not part of his party. So it uh, it does have the character of more of a national unity government. Perhaps it could have even more of those characteristics. Um, But 
it is by mutual agreement of all the parties of the system that it's not right to hold um, those national elections. One, because so many territories could not participate. Um, and there's a material risk to people in those territories, which are, which are well, in the entire country to running such a process. Um, I think he could have made that case forcefully that this is not me deciding this, but it's, it's a constitutional thing and it's a thing that is mutually agreed. So that's one narrative that the Russians are really going for via the GOP. The other one, of course, is banning religion. And we, we know, everyone on here knows that is not true. What you're banning is the FSB-run spy network. That pretends to be a religion. Um, but this, this does cut through very effectively, unfortunately. And this is perhaps where there is a weakness in Ukraine's strategy. So this was something I was discussing last week. I was privileged to be in Paris um, at the main military college uh, doing a panel on information warfare. And there were some lovely people there talking about uh, Ukraine's um, new initiative to reach out to the global south, make connections, and do what perhaps should have been done a year and a half ago. But beyond shifting a few votes in the UN, what's that actually going to achieve? Someone made the point, you'd be far better off appointing an ambassador to every state in the southern US and getting invited to churches and getting invited to local radio stations to really debate the issues, because that's what's going to drive it. And that's where the propaganda narratives are popping up. It's one is, you know, the suspension of politics in Ukraine. The other one is suspension of religion, neither of which is true. The third one is that corruption is rife and that Zelensky is buying yachts with American funding and all these weapons are, you know, now turning up in the Middle East or wherever because Ukraine's getting them and selling them on. These are three massive lies. And I think you have to tackle the lies at source and you have to tackle the lies at the point where they are being targeted and amplified. And unfortunately, that's so, not But then there was lost in translation, right, with this Fox interview, because he did this in English and he did this not, uh, say, in his native language, where he is exceptionally prolific and extremely funny and uh, argues with, uh, uh, say, panache often enough and he, he can't have that in English two of the uh, three questions you just I referred to were part of what Brett Bayer asked or referenced uh, and he did not attend to it and he's incredibly humorous isn't he I mean, if this is in Ukrainian he would be yeah. able to turn he's a joke which is funny. extraordinarily funny I and mean, I like the uh, I like the one he tells about the the two Jews talking in Odessa about uh, you know Russia fighting against NATO, you know, Russia's lost hundreds of thousands. And what about NATO? Well, they haven't turned up yet. Um, but the way he tells it is extraordinarily uh, funny. Um, but you have to tackle the narratives. And this is where there's a disconnect. And this is where the media, um, I don't know what's going wrong here. You know, you would have thought if I was a journalist, and, and I'm not, but if I was a journalist, I'd be looking at or trying to find sources for um what narratives are being amplified, which ones seem to be organic, which ones seem to be artificial. And I would try to be extremely careful with my reporting, uh, and I'd be mindful of either simplifying a particular story uh, to the point where it's, it's meaningless, and we can come to the Polish border blockade in a minute, because that's a classic example of that, 
or I'd be mindful of what narratives are being artificially amplified so I could be especially cautious or, or perhaps tackle them and you know, dig into them. And, you know, that's what I do if I was a journalist and on the BBC, but I'm not. And <laughs> All right. Before we go to the Polish border and the likes, let, and, and as we touched upon that Fox News interview, I see that Michael has his hand up. Michael, you've seen the interview as well, I take it. Uh, no, actually, I have not seen that interview. I've, I've tried to stay away from U.S. politics anything related to the Fox and, and U.S. news uh, the last week for my mental health. Um, I, I wanted to, to ask, you know, as far as these narratives are concerned, one of the things I'm really concerned about, and I think that you, you mentioned the BBC, they've gotten uh, really burned by this, and that is kind of this this both sidesism that you see, which is a lot of these news networks have, feel like they have this obligation to report, hey, this is what's happened, and this is the truth. And, okay, on the other hand, here is what uh, the Russians are saying about it. And it's like 180 degrees opposite. It's just harsh rhetoric. And we all know it not to be true, but so many of the networks and news reports that I see just go ahead and they accept it at face and just kind of move on. You've seen that with the, somewhat in the Gaza where like, you know, it's the, the Gaza health ministry, which is basically Hamas, right? Uh, how, how do you see these news organizations being able to kind of all right, present the you know that if they want to do both sides, but but maybe you know make it conditional upon saying, hey, this is bogus, but you know say it in, in news talk. Does that make that question make sense? It does. I think we need to look at the economics as well of of how these things work, and I think the the Polish. Well, there's a couple of stories recently that exemplify that. One, of course, is the the so-called re-election of Putin in Russia. Now we all know that this is not an election. Uh, we all know that there are no organic opposition allowed and that anybody who's an opposition candidate, inverted commas, um, is, is essentially some kind of puppet or managed puppet by the regime designed to create a simulacrum of, uh, of, of uh, plurality, uh, one which is less and less believable as time goes on. Um, but there is no organic politics at all. So the whole thing's a fake. But then you look at the news headlines and, you know, it's it's uh, Putin. Will he run? Won't he run? I mean, the most pointless story ever run uh, in the history of newsprint. What a waste of ink. Um, and then when he does run, you know, Reuters even ran a kind of shock horror. Putin's running again. I mean, really, you know, I mean, the only surprise is is he on ice in a fridge somewhere or alive? And most of us came to the conclusion that he's alive. The fact that he's running for president is neither here nor there. That is totally uh, anticipated. And yet... Has Reuters presented polling yet? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We have early election result, even though uh, no one's voted. Um, uh, we've called it for Putin. It's a big surprise. Shocker. Um, but what they're doing is not necessarily... They're not sitting down and thinking like, Let's report on this and just spin it and deceive people. But they are using the narratives and the semantic kind of structure and the tone that they would use to report on a similar Western story. They're not adapting their language to what is an entirely different environment. So you just like you fit it into the same pattern, the same patterns of speech, the same structure of language. And because you do that, you are implying a falsehood. Putin, the election, not close, not close to call. Yeah. 
I mean, the episode I'm going to put out there is going to call it a coronation. You know, don't even dignify it with the word election. Um, and this is one of the problems, I think, with the Russian opposition. And even though Navalny's disappeared, and that's not good, and I wish him, uh, you know, I hope he survives, uh, etc., the strategy is, I think, misguided because it's, you know, everyone knows it's a fake process. But the opposition in Russia is saying everybody should vote for a non-Putin candidate. That is almost dignifying the process with some form of objectivity, as if if you vote for a non-Putin candidate, suddenly there's going to be some shock result um, and, and those are going to be measured accurately. Well, of course, they're not. Uh, and you no longer have election observers on the ground able to do any maths uh, or put out videos to show that the, the, this was an artifice, which you could do in previous elections. So even that strategy is perpetuating uh, a reality that no longer exists. You know, we're in a Belarus scenario now, which is dear leader got 90 percent. And anyone who says otherwise is going to be dragged from their car and beaten to a pulp. Now, that's where we are. But the news is not reflecting that reality. It's doing a disservice to reality. How are the results coming in from Vladivostok? Yes, that's right. Yes. Hold the front page. There's been a shock result. No, not really. <laughs> the fish is too warm. The vodka is not cold enough. But Comrade Putin has already 99% of results in favour. That's right. And everyone, everyone's voted. Everyone loves it. Everyone's voted for it in the, uh, like, uh, I think Goncharenko calls, doesn't call it the Gusudastrana uh, Duma. I think they call it the Goth Dora, which uh, Dora basically means, uh, you know, idiot. The house of idiots. All righty. But see, this is the, the whole point. That's why it, is, why it matters greatly to highlight to, to those in the West who are not as familiar, who may not have the time, who are not necessarily what people derogate often as low-information voters, but people who simply do not have the time or the experience, the background, the education to, to understand this. But Russia has been constantly, in terms of propaganda, pushing above its weight. And Russia is not a democracy. It is not on equal footing. And therefore, there doesn't have to be a two sides to the story kind of thing. It has to be very clearly said that here is an authoritarian regime which incarcerates a large part of its population, terrorizes people, expropriates people, um, has one of the lowest fertility rates in the world, the high, uh, one of the lowest... Uh, life expectancies in so-called OECD countries, and it is uh, the boon of all evil, unfortunately, on this planet. It is essentially Mordor, but in modern colors. We have to say it, because you wouldn't... Would you believe Sauron? Maybe we should always go, go back to pop culture and say, do you want to give Sauron the microphone? Yes. That's right. So voting has been taking place in the, uh, uh, you know, in the in, in the left tower constituency of Mordor and uh, the, the, the orcs have voted. Yeah, it's just it's 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 an absurdity. Um, and, I, you know, I know there are some who say, well, don't don't use the orc thing because that is demeaning and dehumanizing, etc. But I think the analogy holds there. We're no longer dealing with a a hybrid autocracy. We're no longer dealing with a system that is willing to tolerate um, opposition. 
because back then opposition didn't represent a threat. So you could you could play with the idea of oppositional politics um, while still maintaining control. Now it's something to be genuinely feared. You know, we've gone full Potemkin village, um, and the sort of subtleties, the absurdist postmodern theatre of Surkov. Um, is 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 not enough. You know, you're not going to take that risk anymore. And it is notable that, of course, when Tolkien said in a pub in Oxford to have a little chat with someone who was thinking about lions and uh, cupboards, uh, he also actually created the orcs on the back of uh, um, previous underworld creatures uh, from the time machine. Created and he cre- yeah. and he created them as an image of the dehumanizing um, authoritarian soldier. He, he did, and there's, there's, there's uh, C.S. Lewis and, uh, and, and, and various other fantasy writers and, uh, and, uh, and so on. There's, there's an apocryphal story which apparently didn't happen, uh, but they used to meet in a variety of pubs in the central Oxford. One, which is, the, I think, the Lamb and Child, and there's uh, Tolkien uh, reading out a, a sort of first draft of... Uh, of Lord of the Rings, and apparently someone at the back goes, oh, God, not more fucking elves. Um, but apparently that didn't happen, but it's a nice story. <laughs> so. uh, um, um, <laughs> um, the funny part about it is uh, there was once an interview about a very, very decent English, uh, said uh, an old English don from Oxford, who supposedly, as a very young man, was... Uh, frequenting the same watering holes and uh, managed to fail to attend a lot of his uh, tutors, uh, say, um, fireside chats because he got utterly sloshed sitting close by to these chats and got literally drunk on poetry. But unfortunately, this was poetry in motion. It was poetry as a, say, response to the upcoming dreadful dark clouds of slash Bolshevik authoritarianism, Stalinism, and of course, Mr. Mr. Hitler, Mr. Schickelgruber, who did his own version of National Socialism and Fascism. We have to say that the narrative projected and the narrative gobbled up by gullible people and projected is coming from Mordor. If we fail to highlight that these are forces of evil, that these are essentially nation states who wish us evil there is as mick yes. ryan generally mick ryan quoted it yesterday this thread which i really like where he dissected and said the others can have a quad too <laughs> it's and it's an interesting one it's like you know the the whole orc mordor thing works on on one level and it's very visceral because we see that playing out in in uh, in in donbass you know and it's it's a blasted First World War landscape that is reminiscent of Lord of the Rings and, and 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 of course you know Ukrainians in the trenches a lot of them do think of it in that good and evil terms and that's absolutely correct but there are other levels on which this is working and I saw yesterday a very interesting uh, event an unusual event where uh, Vladimir Postukhov and Elena Lizinieva two very kind of academic analysts of the Russian um, way of business uh, had, a, had, a, had, a, had an event where they were interviewing each other. And there's an interesting concept behind it because we think of it as, as this visceral evil, but there's also a system behind it. There's a system that is seeking 
to perpetuate itself. It's almost in genetic terms or even one could even use sort of evangelical terms. It's a system which seeks to convert others to the same way of operating because it creates a more seamless environment for the vertical, the Russian vertical to do business. So whereas our um, system, our ecology, as it were, uh, is a rule of law system, and that creates the frictionless environment for Western trade to be conducted, a lawless environment of informal relations is the medium by which Russian values are conducted with less resistance. So we see it not just perpetuating the brutality and the violence, we see it perpetuating a system of rules, which these academics called Sistiama, strangely enough. Um, and it's a sort of mafia-type set of informal relations. Uh, and we can see Hungary, we can see Serbia, and we can see, uh, you know, they're almost fully converted to at, at the elite level. To, to this way of doing business. And we can see it in, in many authoritarian and quasi-authoritarian countries around the world. It's no wonder that they uh, rolled out the red carpet uh, in the Middle East and UAE for, for Putin, because the rules are well understood of those sort of informal uh, relations that underpin uh, how Russia does business. It's no wonder that China uh, you know, may not uh, fully adopt those rules, but it absolutely understands that modus operandi. Ukrainians do not want to live in the Sistiama. They know exactly how it works, and they've had to put up with it for hundreds of years. They want to reject the Sistiama uh, and embrace rule of law. And this is a moot point here. We talk about sort of genocide, we talk about so on, but actually underlining it is the Russian way of business eliminating any resistance to its expansion and to the, so the conductivity for that business. So you could see the whole other more in that respect. It's like you have Ukrainian peasant farmers, so proto-capitalists, who have a sense of uh, private property, which will flourish into a sense of, of, let's say, rule of law and a legalistic society, because that's the natural outcome of, of, of those sort of property rights. So you have to eliminate them through the Holodomor. You have the um, executed renaissance of uh, the transmitters of cultural values, yes, but also they're transmitting a way of doing business, a way of trust and relationships, which is intimately tied with capitalism. So what happens, and this is, you know, if Russia takes over Ukraine, well, you can look at it in a purely brutal, superficial way and say, yeah, they're going to kill everybody who disagrees with them. And yeah, maybe they maybe they will. But what they're actually going for is those who are in the Sistema will be co-opted and not killed. And those who refuse to adopt the informal rules of the Sistema um, will be eliminated. So it's far more than just an ethnic or nationalistic thing or just killing those with Ukrainian identity it's and the, the the academics sort of had a wonderful phrase yesterday she said the Sistiama is finely tuned to understand who is part of Sistiama and who is not part of Sistiama and I think it's an important yeah. distinction there absolutely and, and but it, it Sistema is a this is a continuation it's an uh, it's a refinement if one could 
describe this as ref- being refined, but it's it's uh, say perfecting the art of the previous Mongol-inspired locust approach to um, systematic, quite literally systematic suppression and exploitation of colonized areas in the fashion the Mongols taught the Russian Tsars to do it. Yes. Meaning eradicating eradicating the population or subjugating and then suppressing, if not fully um, by dis- dispersing them, uh, eradicating their culture and their yeah. cultural impact. Uh, or I think it was Catherine who referred to uh, the Russian equivalent of breeding them out. Yes. This is it. You breed out those who, who fight the system, um, but also you have this concept of farming or as the academic yesterday put it, Kormlenia, which is basically you still have to administer that empire and you still have to try and generate resources from that empire, you know, whether it's food, armaments, whatever. Yeah, I have to make that territory productive. So, <coughs> so what do you do? You put in charge your agents. Now, they may be in charge of an area or a population, but what they essentially are in charge of is a resource, a productive resource. Um, and you tell them they're allowed to thieve up to a certain level, but they also have to pay tribute to, uh, to the Tsar. So when you combine that sistema and the idea of Kamlinia or farming out uh, parts of the, of the uh, productive resources or land, that translates very neatly, I think, into... Uh, into what we saw in the, in the 2000s and the, the system that, that Putin's built. All righty. Now, Jonathan, where does that leave us in, in how to stimulate uh, um, a better response, a more versatile, more effective response in the West to this? That's the, the million-dollar question there, because... Yeah, but you're not here for the simple questions. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, know. Um, I think... Ukrainians have been experimenting with a whole range of techniques and methodologies to try and tackle this. Now, you can't fully tackle it. And, of course, if you're in the occupied territories and you're subjected to the Russian information bubble, most people are going to be sucked into into this, it has to be said. So you have to be able to partially control your information environment. And then that's the first thing. The first thing we need to do this is going to be immensely unpopular in the U.S. especially, um, is you have to uh, uh, tighten up on this concept of agents and assets. You know, where is the funding coming from? And you have to make sure that huge amounts of foreign money do not co-opt or pervert your informational systems. Uh, That's certainly one aspect. The other one, of course, is media literacy. And I think there are extremely superficial attempts so far to introduce media literacy in the West. Uh, Far more uh, sophisticated experiments in media literacy taking place in Ukraine with some degree of success. I think we have to learn from that. So it isn't we go around and say, okay, well, fact checking, for instance, doesn't work particularly well. It's great for experts. It's great for people who are really into this, looking at Bellingcat material and whatever. Fact-checking fundamentally is, is, is useful for, I think, for journalists and content producers. It's too slow and cumbersome for content consumers. 
Um, so we have to go beyond the idea that fact-checking can counter disinformation because it absolutely cannot. Um, and we have to give people the mental tools to be sceptical about the information they're seeing. And we have to give them the tools and skills to be able to compare multiple sources and think a little bit more rationally. The other challenge with this is that if you come from a left-right uh, sort of dichotomy, which almost all our systems are built around these kind of political simplifications that take spectrums of points of view and put simplistic labels like left and right on them. And then, of course, you have the sort of partisan fun and games that, we, that we're witnessing in, in various countries, Poland, the US, UK, etc. If we come at these problems with a sort of simplistic left-right dichotomy, then I think it sort of leaves us very vulnerable um, and and this media literacy stuff doesn't work so well. Also, you know, if you're if you're the Boris Johnson Tory party, I'm going to have a little dig at, at Bojo here, um, done great things for Ukraine. But if you're sitting at the top of the party, do you want to sink a bunch of money into educating your population so they start questioning your, uh, you know, your, your little strap lines and your phrases and your simplistic campaigning when well, no one on the left or the strap. right Honestly, gonna... it was a long strap line <laughs> yeah, long strap line, long yeah, strap line. Right, yes and there are plenty of weaponized narratives uh, certainly around the brexit debate you know um the the thing on the side of the bus all that kind of stuff but are you going to want to sink your precious budget into educating the populace so they will query you and see through your own internal propaganda. I mean, of course, of course, you're not going to want to do that. So there's an inbuilt kind of inertia here. And at the moment, we're not seeing media literacy as something that will address the huge existential threat. We don't feel the existential threat to our institutions, our values, our ways of life. Until we do, we're not going to overcome these left-right uh, sort of biases or partisanship in order to embrace that the, the higher cause. Ukrainians, of course, kind of got beyond that. And politics is still bubbling under, of course. Um, but they see uh, really grappling this, this uh, the, the toxicity in the information sphere as something which is absolutely central to their physical survival. Now, next part in all of this is, of course, um, we need to and I'm, I'm still about the million dollar question because you're not here for the easy ones um, we have politicians voted into office at this point in time politicians always react to signaling but at the same time they are also generally fearful of what comes um, since uh, uh, a long time we have polling and uh, politicians are guided by polls They are also guided by people who interpret the polls for them because most politicians are not smart enough to read statistics. The average, there was a wonderful score once about the average math skills of uh, the uh, people who have been voted into the European Parliament. Now, the European <laughs> Parliament is, of course, the third division. So it's not necessarily, this <laughs> is not Champions League, but still. Uh, well, you just have to, uh, I don't know if you've been following the select committee Uh, interviews with Boris Johnson and his uh, uh, his civil servants uh, and scientific advisors during the COVID crisis. 
And they've made it very plain that with his one sort of, let's say, uh, loose relationship with facts um, and the fact that he's educated in the humanities and classics uh, meant he literally could not get to grips with charts, could not get to grips with probabilities or any mathematical concept completely alien to his uh, to his mind and that makes it a little bit tricky during a uh, a pandemic yeah that's what i was trying to get at it it is up to us the population to vote and people who are as i discussed a little earlier with a friend of mine made of sterner stuff i mean you can say whatever you like but uh, uh there were politicians in the past who may have been a little bit less uh, reliant on polls and a little bit more decisive and a little bit more self-reflective. Mm. And, you know, Second World War, I mean, we engaged in black propaganda as well as tackling disinformation, uh, but the information sphere was, was seen as critical to the survival of the country and its economy and war effort. Um, and a lot of attention is paid to whether we should be tooling up our factories uh, and building up our militaries and our munitions capacity, I think we should be giving equal weighting uh, to beefing up the information sphere. Because if you look at the Russian military doctrine, I believe I'm quoting this correctly, um, it talks about impact uh, of Russian aggression pretty much being four parts informational, one part to do with... uh, you know, your, uh, you know, stuff at the pointy end, as it were. Um, and I think we fail to to really recognise that the Russia is deploying resources, vast resources, into the informational sphere. If this continues, there's going to be a pub conversation about doom and gloom and nothing's going to be solved and how can we survive? Uh, yes, well, I, you know, Certain people in the last couple of weeks have, 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 have been panicking. And okay, it's, it's confined to the experts, um, people who follow, you know, uh, Fiona Hill's come out with some strong stuff uh, the last two days. We've got people like Benjamin Tallis and Keir Giles who are, are always, uh, you know, on the case. But there's an especial intensity. So I think the, the, at the pointy end, we've got the experts really starting to ram this message home. And I notice... I think in the previous episodes we've done, I've been rather unpleasant about uh, Mr. Jake Sullivan. Um, But there is a distinct change in his language in the last couple of days. His language has significantly hardened and become a lot more focused, a lot more clarity. And actually, for the first time, I've seen the phrase Ukraine and win in the same kind of sentence in, in a way that's not completely vague. So... This crisis might be useful to start sort of focusing minds a little bit. I also, uh, through various that could be a political that could be a yeah. political thing, right? It, it could be. It could be a way of, of sharpening the debate and getting what you want. Um, but it's taken two years to sharpen that language up. So I don't think it's just uh, partisan politics alone. I think there might be some realization going there, like, oh dear. You know, that, that, it hasn't really worked. Our sort of go slow drip feed has created more uncertainty rather than less. It's created more potential for this to blow up rather than less. And uh, 
and, and, and perhaps, you know, we're leaving it a little bit late to, to turn this around. Um, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be positive outcomes from that. But also I'm getting the sense and the wheels turn very slowly in places like the EU. But I am hearing and having more conversations about funding for media hubs, media projects, uh, different ideas and ways to get the message out and to start approaching, um, you know, uh, I'd say alternative techniques like the Ukrainians do, you know, a more entrepreneurial approach to to trying to tackle disinformation uh, and, and try different methodologies. So these things unfortunately happen kind of very, very slowly. There's a definite uptick in in uh, in these kind of conversations that are going off. And there seems to be some some funding out there to try and uh, and do this. And of course, there's a spike up in events as well. So there's quite a lot of quite focused events. So whereas events last year might be quite kind of academic and vague and this and that and you know a lot of the events that are now being talked about seem to be much more action oriented which is yes we can hold an event but people actually asking well what do we want to get out of it what what's the action that we want to stimulate by this event and then some consideration of the audience and the speakers and the venue and the formats to make them slightly more action oriented so again this this might sound a little vague but um but but it describes the culture war. It describes the media war as it is, and that, that essentially this is the thing which the EU, with all its heterogeneity, once prided itself that it allows so many different voices, so many different cultural approaches to be taken. And this is where we're normally reasonably decent at that we can create projects for small, medium-sized media outlets, uh, entrepreneurs, artists, and the likes to showcase uh, their reflections on, uh, let's say, newsworthy items. And this war is more than just a newsworthy item. It is mm. since the Second World War, the single biggest, um, say, peer-to-peer conflict and probably the crucible of the 21st century. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I'm not sure. I mean, we know that. I'm not sure that is entirely uh, sunk in. Uh, there are key figures who are saying that. Donald Tusk, fortunately, has been one of those who've been saying for some time, and now he's in power. That's that's extraordinarily beneficial. But uh, I, I think it's going to take some months still for the severity of the situation to sink in. I also think one of the problems, to throw some more hand grenades into the conversation, um, the media and even some analysts are not fully joining the dots between the conflagrations that are firing up all over the place. You know, Venezuela... Middle East, etc., they are dealt with as kind of atomized, separate crises, rather than, you know, there being some linkage between them. Now, I don't want to say too much the specific about that linkage, um, but authoritarian cooperation is a thing, and we ignore it at our peril, I think. Well, this brings us back to Novatech right away. But before we go there, let me just highlight one thing, Jonathan. Um, if I'm not quite mistaken, uh, we touched upon this briefly, but in your interview with Olena Halushka, she would have highlighted the difficulties Ukrainian advocacy has had as well. I didn't listen to the interview yet, but what did she say about the hard uh, work of advocacy? Because when she and... Uh, Victoria Wojcicka and I were talking last year when they were doing their campaigning on different topics, including the winterization. It was already exceptionally hard to get through 
to the minds of Western politicians, Western support and the likes. And they met regularly with people who simply didn't see that things were difficult, who couldn't imagine that this was their conflict just as well. Did you say anything about that? Because it precedes the culture war. Yeah, well, the specific topics we were talking about in this episode was the um, the assets, the uh, seizing the, the, the frozen assets uh, of the Russian Central Bank. Uh, so we were particularly focused on that. Um, and obviously there's a certain amount of foot dragging there um, and unwillingness to really tackle that topic, whether it be in the media, but also politics, which is starting to unfreeze a little bit now. Um, so that topic always comes up. Um, but I can tell you from the stats on the channel, it's unfortunately human behavior, even amongst the sort of pro-Ukrainian bubble that I'm broadcasting to, I can pretty much predict um, the size of the audience for each video. And if it's about culture, as opposed to geopolitics, it's going to get the lowest audience. Um, if it's about Ukraine, as opposed to having Russian in the title, it's going to get a lower audience because everyone loves trauma and tragedy and whatever, and, and, and Russia delivers on that. If it's a female as opposed to a male, it will get a lower audience. And if it's a Ukrainian as opposed to a Western expert, it's going to get a lower audience. So if you combine those things together, if I interview, if I do a, a, you know, a segment on Ukrainian culture with a female speaker, you know that it's going to get just a couple of thousand views. If, uh, let's say, and, and I massively value these, but if it's a military figure, uh, you know, Richard Sheriff, Ben Hodges or whatever, you know it's going to get in the tens of thousands. If it's, if it's the, the wonderful Ben Hodges, it's going to get hundreds of thousands. So, unfortunately, there is this sort of inbuilt bias, not just in the media, but in, in audience behaviours and reactions. And I have to say, for me, I, I often learn more uh, from the videos that I do with, with so-called unknown Ukrainians. You know, that's often where the most original insights uh, and information come from. Depth and authenticity. Mm. And, you know, first-hand understanding, but also the, the more local context and often historical understanding that, that brings things to life. I mean, that's where we have to mention Mearsheimer and David Sapp. This is my main objection to, to many of these uh, useful idiots, um, is that there is no local context. There's no historical depth uh, or that first-hand understanding. And many of these Ukrainians are going to be written off as being emotional because their insights come from direct experience and, and often passed down through stories from their family, for instance, who will have experienced the Holodomor uh, and, and various uh, other uh, iniquities like that. And some people say, oh, well, that makes them biased. For me, that, 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 that's a, an absolutely critical um, contact point with, with reality and insight. It's interesting that you highlight this because I, I, I tend to have the same feeling um, when it comes to the impact of certain interviews. We had, for example, um, an interview here with Alexander Kamishin uh, that was in June 2022, which literally electrified the audience. Um, there are people still today talking about the interview. Um, they're talking about it because um, it was the dedication, the commitment, the clarity and the uh, sincerity 
and the staccato with which he was highlighting what the organization, the second largest organization in the country was doing uh, to keep up the logistics of uh, Ukraine during the war under suppression, that they would be building, rebuilding, reconfiguring when, uh, whenever uh, territories or areas were liberated, that they'd be there first. And that they were, so to say, in a race with Ukraposta, with uh, um, literally who became a friend of his, the, the CEO of Ukraposta at the same time, to be there first. Typically, the Ukraposta people were on the same train with them when arriving at a new place, uh, liberated, as happened, by the way, in Hershon. But having said this, the intensity of the statements, the clarity of their statements matters a great deal. Same thing applied when Ivan Fedorov came. He, the mayor of Militopol, he had been detained and abducted by the Russians. He was tortured. He was incarcerated. And uh, it took some time until um, he could be freed. Ivan is one of the most sincere, serious, and dedicated people I've ever um, had a chance to speak to, just like uh, Alexander Kamishin. And it is absolutely stunning with what, what kind of um, calm he manages to live both with the emotions and the logistical challenges of his job, making sure that those who have fled Militopol have one reference point and hope that they can come back, and that there's a connection with those who are essentially partisans in and around Militopol fighting quite successfully against the Russians under occupation since that March of 2022. I mean, anyone who's spoken to uh, Olga Rudnyava, who's the CEO of Superhumans in Lviv, will absolutely understand what you're talking about there, because they have someone who understands the deep historical context. They're absolutely involved in making things happen. So completely action-oriented. She's built one of the most incredible rehabilitation centers for um, service, uh, service people, amputees. Uh, you know, some single amputees, some are double, triple amputees. It's a world-class facility built in less than a year. And when she personally gave us a tour around it, I mean, she's incredibly busy, but she gave us a tour around it, which we filmed. She knows not just the names of every patient. She knows their life story. She knows exactly the journey they've been on, how they were wounded, when they arrived, what the stage of treatment uh, they're at. And she's aware of every success or setback. And you go around and you can see that she knows every single detail inside out, as well as the big picture of, you know, how to run and fund this incredible facility and all the politics that go along with it. You cannot be but absolutely in awe of, of those people. And I think it's a very different um, kind of quality of interviewee than someone who is perhaps coming from a more sort of academic or scholarly background. That's also kind of interesting, but I'm always interested to interview those people who are action-oriented, who come at these problems with an entrepreneurial mindset. So we've got a problem. We've got a problem of Russian disinformation. How are we going to deal with this? How can we, let's say, use AI? How can we work with the media? How can we transform the media? How can we run education programs? You know, 
How's it going to be funded, structured, delivered? How do we measure results? I, I, I love the action-oriented people because that's, I know, but what you just said there, that's where you get more of these learnings, I think. Absolutely. Um, well, let's, let's make sure that we bring more of those voices uh, um, to our listeners and uh, also to those who follow Silicon Curtain on um, YouTube in that regard. Shall we go further on what matters to Ukraine and uh, the narratives or what would you like to go for? Because otherwise, I'm quite sure we'll have questions from the audience as well. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Well, I think we know that Russia adapts its narratives based on its strategic priorities. So you'll have slow narratives, the one that have been around since the start or even since the long war. And they'll, they'll go in abeyance sometimes and they'll come back to the surface like the whole Nazi thing. You know, and they'll be there in the background. Then there are more short-term narratives or expedient narratives. And the one at the moment in a corruption is the really big one because that's an easy target. And it, it, it drops into all sorts of preconceptions, as well as anyone who's traveled in Ukraine in the 90s will know that Ukraine was substantially more corrupt in some ways than Russia was in the 90s. So again, you have this sort of half-learned truths that can easily be weaponized. So the idea of Ukraine being a corrupt elite that's not worth defending, that, that's one we have to tackle. And um, one of the people I met in Paris, an incredibly you know, insightful lady, um, works on uh, military procurement uh, systems that try to introduce uh, transparency uh, through, uh, you know, um, open source, make, making the data that underpins these transactions, uh, uh, you know, accessible to people, um, and introducing, uh, you know, digital systems that are less easy to co-opt than um, human-based ones. So there's an extraordinary amount that is going on to try and have end-to-end -end traceability for the weapons that are provided, um, including, you know, if they get hit or damaged, you know, what the what happens to them then, how they're recycled through the system. But there's almost no conversations happening about this stuff. That's why I think that that's that's where the, the mainstream media is really falling down the job here. There are stories out there, interesting stories, ones that actually are both hugely informative and have a public interest um, uh, sort of motive, um, but which also would counteract many of the lies that are doing the rounds. But we really don't see much coverage of them at all. Why are we not surprised? Uh, we have a question from Lexicon. Oh, hi, guys. Jonathan, I just feel like we're old friends. And I'm just one of your hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands that watches Ben Hodges. But really, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so interesting what you say about the audiences that you know beforehand and especially that a Ukrainian person will not draw, of course, the same size audience as a Russian person. That's just so amazing. And I just wanted to say that a couple of weeks ago, you know, Anna, you know, Anna from Ukraine. So I used to listen to her at the beginning, not so much these days. You know, I look for, I don't know, sort of more military and political stuff, but I listened just, you talked with her, I think just last week or two weeks ago, and her insights 
about Russians, for example. I mean, people are interested in Russians, you know, ask a Ukrainian. She is so insightful and has such a um, neat and spot on way of saying what a Russian's going to do, how a Russian's going to respond, how come their country, you know, they let it be so fucked up, we're pissed off with our politicians, we throw them out, we vote in new ones, the vote doesn't work, we have a revolution. Russians have crappy leaders, they don't do anything. I mean, lots of people say that, but uh, certainly friends I met in Ukraine told me that. But anyway, she so she talks about, she has so many examples. She knows she's been living with the beast. But, you know, it's really a shame that more people wouldn't listen to your interview with her. It was fabulous. And uh, I, I just always say you do a very good job in the interviews. You ask the right questions. And I very much appreciate the Ukrainians that, that come. I'm one person, but I guess uh, those of us who are in the war on Ukraine's side want to hear Ukrainian insights. Somebody like Hodges is fabulous, on message, has never deviated. Had, I, I wrote him, I tagged him when uh, Joe Biden finally had the word win and uh, Ukraine in the same sentence yesterday and said, I guess your message is gradually getting through. It, it was <laughs> feeble, but uh, maybe he's on the road. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's an international star that's good because of his amazing military insight, but also because of his unswerving support for the right strategy in Ukraine. That idiot yeah. speaker of the House who says he doesn't know how this is going to be won for Ukraine, you know, ought to know bloody well that the strategy is damn clear. Ukraine knows it and Ben Hodges knows it. So I really thank you for having Ben on and I thank you for having Anna on. They're, they're all fabulous. I mean, Ben is extraordinarily generous with his time, it has to be said. He, uh, you know, I think because we see him popping up everywhere, we perhaps don't appreciate how much of his life is, is, is taken up by these interviews. He does a huge, huge number of these. And um, as far as I'm aware, never turns any down. He'll appear on, on, on small channels, big ones, medium-sized, like, you know, ones like, like mine. Um, and Ukrainian and, uh, ones, uh, yeah. he'll always respond to yeah, Ukrainians. He's and he's on yeah. their channels, Poland. He's, this yeah. is his war. That's how he's fighting this war for Ukraine. That, in addition to being uh, on the logistics side uh, for NATO, and he knows damn well why we can get the Taurus and why we could get a hundred times more Abrams and a whole lot more Patriots, and he knows how to do it. Absolutely. But anyway, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't stop. And I think this media campaign is is his weapon in this war. He's fabulous. Mm. And he doesn't just turn up with his own preconceived ideas as well. He's completely coming in and listening out to see if there's something that challenges his point of view. I think that's, that's the other bit, really. And if we talk about tackling propaganda, um, propaganda plays really well on people with assumptive thinking, on people who come to any debate with their preconceived ideas about things and aren't willing to, to listen to ideas. That, unfortunately, is, is, is a cultural problem, isn't it? Uh, and it's an educational problem. It's a long-term problem of how you get people to be able to 
um, consider information in a more rational way, but also not to you know, come to conversations on the assumption that their opinions are, are facts. Um, and yeah, Ben comes here and he's, 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 he's up for, for, for learning. Um, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, you get Ukrainians. Ukrainians often, I speak to many Ukrainians now who do a huge number of events, and a lot of them will complain that when they give a robust answer, especially if they're female, they will be labelled as emotional. And this is not just by sort of, you know, male. Uh, this will be by anybody who's non-Ukrainian. They'll be labelled as emotional and in some way sort of biased. In my experience, Ukrainians are, of course, very emotional and passionate, but that does not cloud their thinking. When it comes to the channel, and I won't name any names, there are only two interviews that I've had to sort of throw in the bin. Out of 300 plus, there are only two that I've had to literally write off. One was because the journalist in question was still operating out of Moscow and was worried that her and her team would be in danger. So I quite understand why they didn't want to take the risk of publishing it. Um, the other one was a leading Russian opposition journalist who gave the most unhinged interview I have ever heard. And this is, this is someone who is on the oppositional side, literally losing it and calling European Nazis because they, uh, they didn't want to give, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry Russian a, uh, a, uh, a visa to come to Europe. That was around the sort of debate that was happening around the tourist visas last year. And uh, it's an extraordinary insight that every single Ukrainian I've interviewed who are in the, the worst circumstances possible, you know, they may have lost people. They may be on the front. They will all know people, family members and so on who are either missing, dead, or in danger. And yet they come with the utmost professionalism and the utmost clarity in their thoughts and a desire to be objective according to, you know, the, the reality as they see it. And they are generous as well. I think this is something that goes really unnoticed, is the extraordinary generosity of everyone who's on the channel. My hit rate is about sort of, 60 odd percent so out of 60 percent i'm quite careful about who i contact and i'll sort of vet and look at their their media output their social media output but around 60 percent of people i contact will go yes we'll do an interview and almost all of those will be in the next you know couple of weeks after i contacted them and no one asks for money and no one says oh you can use this bit but you can't use that bit so there's an extraordinary generosity and it's not just that they're under attack. It's because they see the value of that going beyond themselves and their own self-interest. There's a societal value. There's, a, there's value to things that are bigger than themselves. I would say even ideals, social, political ideals. I have to say, I've contacted all of the Russian opposition, every single one of them. And you'll notice that they are particularly absent on the site because whether it's out of fear or just just not seeing why this activity is for the greater good rather than their own personal benefit i rather fear that 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 is a consideration of why uh, many turn down of course some of them will be in fear and they'll think okay well if they on this channel i might get more unwanted attention uh, etc but I also fear that there Jonathan, just isn't a social attention? concept. 
Yeah, well, and what <laughs> you mean tea, pools, or windows? Well, yes, any any number of those. Take your pick. Um, I've been trying to figure out whether there's a seniority. You know, if you're if you're really important, you fall out of a plane, and then if you're quite important, you fall out of a car, or, or if you're less important, it's a window. I don't know if you've spotted a, a hierarchy there. I think the problem is in Spain, the buildings were, which only have uh, two stories in the countryside where they all are, they really have to get, get in with a wet team, which is why they killed them all so heavily. Yeah. Um, the tea thing is something which is, from their perspective, probably uh, some kind of an atonement for their misunderstanding of tea and the English tea culture. Uh, but then again, we, we know the Russians and like the samovar, so they probably thought that if they concentrate it further and make it poisonous enough, that will work. But you're you're probably right that there must be some kind of a kind of a uh, um, scorecard as to what gets you up to a certain level and a what kind of building you'll be thrown out of, um, from what floor, and in what format. If yeah. you're just, a, say, a bank secretary or the CFO or the auditor of the bank, as happened now recently, uh, then it doesn't really matter. You can be thrown out of something which is just 14 stories high. But if you're really important, uh, then the third floor, uh, the third upper floor of a proper sensible gas from building is probably a necessity to make a statement. Well, this, is, this was the title of one of the books, I think, which was... Uh about polonium and Litvinenko. It's a very expensive poison. So you're not going to go to all that effort. Uh, and if that person is relatively unimportant, um, you know, Novichok in the underpants, that's, that's a, you know, a, a perverted compliment to Navalny and his relative uh, uh, danger to the regime. Well, <clears throat> you, you would always deal with an ethno-fascist in that way, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, the window, it's, it's, it's just, it's, you don't need a huge team there. You just need, uh, you know, maybe one or two people involved in that operation. It's relatively simple. Whereas Nimtsov, you know, I mean, listening to some people who describe the logistics of uh, killing somebody that close to the crown, you, you would have needed a substantial uh, infrastructure and team. To, to potentially carry something like that out. Yeah, and, and get away. And get away and cover it all up and all the rest of it. Uh, then they it's caught very it. Likely, they right? caught, of course, they pinned it on a couple of hapless Chechens no, no, or something. No, right? of course. They, 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 of course, they caught someone next to it. You're right. <laughs> but um, I got to say, though, that so, so witness uh, the great courage of the Russian oppositionists who won't respond. I just want to say your response rate is absolutely staggering. That really is something. And because everybody you get is absolutely excellent. Um, so I'm sure we don't miss those who wouldn't come on for whatever mm. reason. But I, I just uh, also had a small aside. You've got to watch out because uh, Axel there, I posted a little uh, stupid note because there was Axel boasting of having literally electrified the audience. So I thought, so I had to say something about it. Not me. So, <laughs> literally. So that's right. So you want Alexander to be careful Kavishin. about where your guests are sitting if Axel's around. 
No, it's remind me I, to I, wear I, some I, Wellington boots when I come to visit you then, you know. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to touch the third rail of Maria Report politics. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lexicon. Uh, having said this, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Niels, uh, from the beautiful, beautiful Paybar, the Netherlands, the Lowlands, the Niederlanden, sent me a note highlighting that essentially Anna Tsareva the infamous deputy editor-in-chief of Komsomolskoya Pravda has been found dead at her home in Moscow. Oh, my God. Her preceding, her preceding uh, office holder, Vladimir Sugorkin, the old, bloody, decrepit, vodka-tainted, hard, heavy-smoking editor of that infamous... Toilet paper. Sorry, the infamous <laughs> paper uh, passed away a year ago too. Totally naturally, of course. It seems that somehow you know the the the, the, the truth of the Komsomolets has not been coming out anymore. No, I mean I don't want to. In my statement there, um, I specifically said Russian opposition and those who are more political. Because you know, I don't want to come across as a Russophobe. You know, I am entirely prejudiced against the Kremlin and against all its acts and anyone who participates in them. Uh, but Russophobia is another, you know, very effective weaponization uh, narrative that is used by the Kremlin, and it's used very much to make even oppositional Russians really think that actually, yeah, everyone does hate us, right? Uh, it's not what we do, it's the fact they actually hate us. There are a whole host of extremely articulate and amazing Russians on the channel. Now, I know a lot of Ukrainians listening are not going to like that, uh, but there are some extraordinary and I think very important voices on the channel, very, very carefully vetted, um, but often there'll be academics, researchers, historians, experts in disinformation, experts in Russian history, and I think it's incredibly important to keep those avenues open um, and not to write everybody off. I'm not saying, you know, that these guys are effective oppositionists or whatever. But if they're on the channel, it means I think they've got something important and interesting to say. And it might just help us understand the regime and its mechanics, uh, maybe even help understand its weaknesses and how we can tackle it. Tremendous. Uh, we should try to get Stephen Kotkin um, on our uh, respective yes. shows and have a word with him. To, I mean, on the one hand, he understands what they're doing. On the other hand, he has been highlighting many times that he doesn't believe in them and that he considers them to be evil. But he is so Russophile that mm. it's hard for him to detach himself, right? Uh, yeah, it absolutely is. And of course, when you add in the the big geopolitical narratives, you know, Neil Ferguson and others also tend to fall into that sort of trap of being more of the generalist historian, although Kotkin obviously has a lot of detailed uh, knowledge of Russian history too. Um, yeah, I mean, there are certain narratives which, which we, I think, would profoundly disagree with him on, but perhaps find it rather entertaining to uh, to discuss them nonetheless. Um, I won't name so this falls, story. He but... falls prey. He fall, what you're saying is he, Stephen Cotkin felt false prey to the massive amount of the firehose of bullshit detail Russia can provide in terms of culture, so he can fall in love with the 
see the, the pieces of the mosaic without seeing the overall scheme. Yes. Is that what you're saying? I think there's an element of that. There's an element of abstracting Russian history and seeing the revolution as a completely distinct period from the current uh, and seeing Tsarism as another completely distinct. And of course, in certain senses, there's a lot going on that is distinct. But I think this is why these Pastorov and, and uh, Lizinyev are so interesting yesterday. They're looking at things that are continuities. And then they're looking at how this continuity has morphed and adapted and changed. And this idea of Kamlinia, this idea of a, of a system of informal relations that sort of cuts through. And if you read Alexander Etkin, who talks a lot about the, the economic uh, and the resource basis of the regime and its structure and its relationships, I think there are, there are interesting stories there that just get kind of lost if you focus on more of the geopolitical abstracts or the sort of left-right dichotomy or, you know, and to an extent, you're getting sucked into a, uh, you know, a, a description of the world which Russia has created. It's, a, it's another narrative they, they've hooked us into talking about um, of Russia as a, you know, progressive uh, um, revolutionary power. Uh, with, with uh, you know, uh, uh, this incredible Western ideology of Marxism, it makes them sound almost kind of, you know, uh, modern, progressive, etc. So they, they, it's another layer of reality they've got us to, uh, to believe in. Now, I don't know if many people listening here will have uh, ever read uh, The Futurological Congress by Stanislaw Lem, the Polish science fiction author. But in that book, he basically... You know, he goes to a conference and realizes that almost all of reality is is a hallucination induced by uh, uh, various layers of sort of pharmacology. And as he gets antidotes and as the various things wear off, each layer of reality is stripped away. And this happens over and over. And just when he thinks he's hit the final layer of reality, you know, it turns out that's an illusion as well. And this is how I see Russian narratives working. It's like the infinite nesting dolls of bullshit. See, in the, the layering is the one which, fortunately, in en passant, you highlighted the wonderful Western ideology of Marxism, because the nihilistic approach to general values, the anti-enlightenment um, approach, Marxism, was conjured up after Rousseau in the West by some very, very unhappy people who spent far too much time in London doing things which nobody should be doing. Yes, and uh, I always found it fascinating, the, the fairly objective description of reality, the extraordinary fact-based uh, stuff that Engels has put together, describing actual conditions in, in, in quite a documentary style. So you've got this extraordinary layer of reality which draws you in. But then you've got you've got the, the you know the Marxism stuff. You've got the theoretical stuff that then makes conclusions from it, which is all complete bullshit. Um, but it's compelling, and you, you see a lot of the the Russian uh, propaganda making use of those same. It's not just even a fire hose of falsehood. It's a fire hose of facts, relevant and irrelevant, with some falsehood mixed in. But it's it's an artifice. It's a it's a construct. It's a reality. Or as I call them, it's an ontology. 
which draws you in. It's a way of interpreting the world. But what you're missing is the is the essence. You know, you're seeing the Potemkin facade, and you're missing the informal Tistiama that sits beneath it, which is which is not written down anywhere. And of course, Ukrainians will understand it because they've lived it, they've seen it, they see how it operates, and they know you're not going to get it from a textbook. You're not going to get it from a constitution or from a set of laws. It's a it's a it's a unwritten set of behaviours, which you can only experience if you haven't experienced it. Then you're going to spout off like, uh, you know, Mishima, Kotkin, and perhaps the others do. And the funny part is, it's good that you just highlighted Engels. Uh, he is what I would say Dickens without the charm, and uh, without the florid um, kind of descriptive capacity that uh, Mr. Marx and his uh, followers are evidently. Uh, better captured on the other side of Plato's cave. They really haven't understood anything which happens on the other side. Yes, absolutely. And then they create uh, dangerous simplicities, dangerous uh, simplistic solutions to complex problems. And of course, uh, quasi-religious as well, which plays very well with where Russia's going. And this is another interesting phrase. This might be a teaser for the next episode. Um, But these two academics were already talking about what the Sistema looks like now in Russia as Russia transforms into a war economy. And they've said that Putin really was not an ideologist. Putin's too thick, really, to uh, to originate an ideology or even to articulate one or, or really understand one. And he had no real use for an ideology until recently. You know, I mean, he had the barely digested rubbish from Dugin and others which are enough just to keep, you know, their little said patriots and fascists on side and, you know, the pseudo-religion uh, under the Moscow patriarchy. But you don't need a consistent kind of ideology to have that all hang together. Uh, so you've got this sort of extraordinary postmodern mishmash. Well, it seems that as they move towards the war economy, Putin has decided they need more of an ideology. And he mentioned it in one of his little tipsy ramblings that was recorded earlier in the week. He said that Ukraine will lose because they don't have an industrial base, because they don't have their own money, and because they don't have an ideology. And he said, we do, and that's why we have a future and they don't. And it's, you could just write that off as an extraordinary rambling phrase, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. You know, it's not an incredibly intellectually sound ideology, but I think he is formulating something that he can pull people around. And these two academics described it as national Bolshevism, which is a fairly scary topic, but it's a fusion basically of Nazism and, uh, and, and communism. Um, which is no surprise, given the fact that he likes Eileen so much. Indeed. And it's a, you know, it's a natural thing. I used to outrage people by saying that... Uh, if the whites had won the Russian Civil War, then you would have seen a Franco-style fascism in Russia. I mean, I've been telling people that for years, and they, they find it a fairly horrifying idea. Uh, and then when I say that, actually, that would have better prepared Russia for a democratic transition than communism did, then, you know, I've lost a few friends that way. Um, especially, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, my father definitely didn't want to hear that, uh, given, given that, the, you know, our family fled, fled Central Europe, fled uh, Austria 
1938 and 1939. You, you don't hear those kind of things, that somehow Nazism is, is less toxic than, uh, than communism. Um, you know, equally horrific, let's say. It's, it's, it's horrific in its own way. Thank you. Equally horrific. Jana, you, you, my co-host had a question before she lowered her hand in the meantime. But Jana, you have a question, then we go to Ivan, right? Yes, I, I had many questions, uh, Axel and uh, Jonathan. But Jonathan, it was amazing because you actually answered several of my questions uh, because I wanted to ask you about like the landscape, um, you know, the um, environment of uh, the propaganda. You answered that. You told me even what kind of people are more susceptible to a misinformation or propaganda. And I had several other ones that you answered. But let me ask you now, because you described so well uh, what is going on and I do realize that you do not have a crystal ball but do you have any mm, insights for the future how do you think this uh, uh, Russian uh, misinformation and propaganda landscape will uh, develop what trends can we uh, expect uh, that you are observing if uh, if not no worries Uh, I have more questions and we can also go to Ivan but if you have some ideas, <laughs> very grateful. I think the, the it, it really depends on where that is playing out. You know, I mean, if it's a, a narrative in, say, a client state like uh, Hungary, it's going to be a different sort of narrative. Serbia again, there's going to be a certain set of narratives that play out. Um, you know, Russia as a, a a a great moral guardian of morality. Um, and what did um, I think it was Simonyano? Or one of those last week just made the, the barefaced claim that, that Russia is the savior of civilization and the defender of freedom, the last free country on earth. I mean, the lies are so big and bold and juicy and oozing pus that it's just it's unbelievable listening to them. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be laughable. Um, but that's you know, that's the propagandist. The, 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 the lies that I think are the worst and just gone live on the channel is, is an interview. So there's a little harsh guesty, but today was um, uh, Mikola Kuleba, uh, who is the founder of Save Ukraine. And we were talking about the kidnapped children. The most pernicious propaganda is not the ones that are directed at the West, which is designed to um, cause inaction and despair and division. You know, we, 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 we need to un- understand that, dissect it, and, and, and develop ways to oppose it. The worst is the disinformation in the occupied territories, in places like Chechnya, Crimea, Donbass. It's where Russia controls the information sphere and where the full genocidal venom can be unleashed because that's got a purpose to it. The purpose there is not just to make people indifferent. The purpose there is to turn the population into the next generation of meatwave army. You conquer a territory, you brainwash it, you kill anybody who is not part of Sistema, and then you convince the rest of them that everybody else is their enemy, and you use that territory to conquer the next territory, and the next, and the next, and the next. So... If I'm going to make a prediction, it is that if we let Russia 
do what it wants, uh, that technique, which they've been using for 400 years, would start to salami slice Europe. Um, they, they would start with non-NATO countries, work their way through Central Asia, and then they would move on to, say, Moldova, Baltics, Poland, Romania. I mean, this is fairly horrific way of saying it, but this is where I think the propaganda is, is most pernicious, is where they control fully the information sphere. All right. Uh, opposing that, Norway this evening <clears throat> uh, during the Oslo summit stated that it will commit immediately 1 billion euros. Denmark is tying up 1.8 billion euros. Sweden hasn't given the number, but it'll come. And Finland, as always, gives no numbers, says nothing. And uh, President Minister made some very friendly statements. Uh, but uh, I have here, and I've discussed it with friends a little earlier, I have here the readout of the brief Finnish press conference, which is the Finnish press conference with Finnish media. One is Helsinki Sanomat, uh, which asked summit sauna, yes or no, summit sauna kulae, and the answer was a sauna, a hupi koyukusta, which means no sauna, no summit. And the second uh, thing was from a more, let's say, <clears throat> kind of uh, yellow press, um, or the follow-up question from the Finnish yellow press uh, to that. The question was beer, and the answer was no beer, no sauna. As such, we understand that the Finns have donated almost likely the same sum as the uh, Danes, which is astonishing. And... Um, that there was, if there hadn't been any beer, there wouldn't have been any sauna, and without sauna, there wouldn't have been any summit. But seemingly, this summit is a success. It seems that Ukraine has uh, garnered close to five and a half billion in commitments across that summit. It seems also that Norway is indicating um, that together with Kongsberg, its a, a weapon system manufacturer, It will find ways to upgrade um, older uh, U.S. originating equipment and make it ready for delivery to Ukraine. Jonathan, maybe, just maybe, parts of Northern Europe think that Sistema and salami slicing is not worth tolerating. Mm. And, you know, I think Britain has the advantage of uh, being on its little island But I also think Britain gets it, uh, fortunately. Uh, and I thought I think uh, there are considerable connections between Nordics, uh, Baltics, and, and, and Britain as well in a lot of this sort of planning and, and discussions. And, of course, we host some of the leading hawkish experts here as well, uh, including you know, Chatham House, uh, Henry Jackson Society, and various other um, hawkish think tanks, which I'm very, very grateful for. Um, so I think there definitely is a kind of consensus there. Um, and I think there is a certain understanding of the threat. Um, the noises were interesting coming from Paris. I think Paris is, is a little more, um, is a little stronger in some of the, uh, the noises it's making than, than Berlin is. Um, and, but do they yet feel it as an existential threat? So I think you do have 
you know, those countries that have understood Russian imperialism better in the past um, and clashed with it uh, and who have closer proximity to it really get it far more than, uh, than those perhaps in Central Europe. Um, then you have those in Eastern Europe who, who ought to get it, but for one reason or another um, did not. And that, that, that's a concern, of course. Alrighty, with that we go to Ivan, who's from Bulgaria. Ivan, oh, question for Jonathan. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for bringing me up. I'm just uh, worried that uh, the influence of the Russian propaganda in the Western countries, in let's say that the free world, and in my opinion, there has to be a deep investigation in how through the decades before, the Russia has shaped the narrative. And in that sense, I would like to hear your opinion on the uh, following uh, observation. So in when uh, Kennedy was uh, assassinated in 63, the assassin was, uh, obviously very well linked to USSR. So, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a Marxist, has been for three years in uh, USSR, has a Russian wife. But at the same time, I have read on um, sociological um, examination. Sorry, that's not the the correct word, but uh, uh, sociological research in the USA several years ago, when it was found that uh, the majority of the US citizens believed that behind the assassination of uh, Kennedy are either CIA, FBI, the mob, but never the Russians. Alrighty. Okay. <laughs> That's an interesting one, because if you read various accounts of KGB defectors, they describe the level of risk tolerance of the various operations. And I interviewed, actually, a, um, a KGB defector, a senior colonel of the 5th Directorate, the infamous 5th Directorate, and he said something very interesting. He said, if you get, like, a KGB posting during the Cold War, or a diplomatic posting abroad. Moscow, you'd get these missives from Moscow saying, do a particular operation, do something, take a certain amount of risk. And quite often you'd have the local agents in London, Paris, or wherever, would fluff the operation up or pretend they never got the cable. Why? They didn't want to go back to Moscow. They didn't want to have to go back to... Mukhosransk or wherever kind of, you know, fly shitsville. Um, they wanted to carry on living uh, in, in the decadent West because it's quite nice. So, first of all, I believe the KGB had a far lower tolerance for risk anyway institutionally because they didn't want to trigger Third World War. They weren't as proselytizing a state as, uh, as, uh, as Putin's Russia is. Uh, which essentially seems to have no borders, no rules, etc. The KGB did operate according to some rules. They did have a sense of limits. If 
they were to send somebody like Lee Harvey Oswald on a mission to kill the American president, you're in World War Three territory, you're in nuclear war territory. That does not seem to me to be within the rules of operation or the rules of operational risk that they seemed to take at the time. They'd worked through proxies, they'd worked to topple governments, but it's always through sort of proxies, as we know, through the Cold War. It seems to me, therefore, that actually they were probably, to say it colloquially, they were probably shitting themselves when that happened in case they were implicated because it's, it's, it's quite possible that wasn't uh, their operation or intention and was way beyond the spectrum of risk that they would, uh, they would encompass. So I think that, that's kind of my take on it, that we need to be a little bit careful with that one. However, as we know, Russia would be quite happy to use a situation like that to spread conspiracy theories. So it's quite conceivable that, you know, debunking the moon landings, um, and talking about mafia and so on, they'd be quite happy to, to, to weaponize various narratives around those events as long as it didn't push them beyond their normal tolerance for, for risk. Ivan, would you like to uh, react? Please go ahead. Yes, thank you. My question was a, a little bit different. Uh, although the highest ranking security service operative that defected to from the Communist Bloc to the West, which is uh, Yon Mihai Pachepa. This is the head of the foreign intelligence of the uh, Romania under Ceausescu. He is the one who is arguing that uh, actually the assassination of Kennedy was ordered by Khrushchev. But let's say that this is a speculation. My question is a little bit different. How come that this Russian narrative managed to influence the opinion of so many U.S. citizens in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, through the decades, through now. This is most the most disturbing thing for me. If Russia yeah. is able to manipulate the public opinion in a country like USA back in those deca decades before, Imagine what it can do now. Well, now it's far worse. Now it's far worse, I agree. But also remember, propaganda does not typically create a story. It does not create a narrative from nothing because it, it doesn't have the power to do that. But it will find divisions, it will find stories that are plausible and it will weaponize them. So the moon landing, there's plenty of evidence that, that, that it happened. But also, there's lots and lots of footage that you can kind of twist the other direction. And so that's great. You know, you, you, you can do that. And it's it's sort of plausible on a certain level, you know, unless you're a trained scientist. The same with the mafia story. They didn't invent the concept of mafia. They didn't invent the fact that the mafia really had its claws into parts of American society. And the fact that, uh, you know... You, you don't have to invent that story from nothing. You can weaponize something that is, that is genuinely there. I mean, we just have to remember Al Capone and the others and the, you know, during Prohibition, the, the uh, uh, you know, the power that, that, that actually some of these organizations had in reality 
it's not it's not a big leap. So Russian propagandists are not that powerful. It's just that where they're not met with resistance, where they're not met with a literate public, then, you know, they can weaponize all sorts of things. But rarely do they make these stories up completely in a vacuum because that that takes too much effort, too much resource. Um, you've got to work with, with divisions and problems that you find uh, in the societies that you're targeting. I think that's a key aspect there, that if and when we are weak and if we fail to, uh, to say, tell our own convincing stories, if we fail to provide civics classes, quite literally, and uh, educate our children, and if we fail to be, say, adaptive and flexible and successful ourselves, only then those from Mordor have any chance of infiltration. Right here, let's go to Marcus. But, but I think, Jonathan, that, that is your message, right? It, it absolutely is. And I, the, the other phrase, the last quick phrase I'd say, is that we often look at propaganda as if it's a series of narratives or anti-facts. It doesn't operate like that. It operates as what I call an ontology. It's an entire reality. It's an entire system or way of thinking. And so our response has to be to create alternative, believable worlds that uh, that can counter it. And, uh, we, we need to unpack that, I think, in another episode. But it's, I think it's an important uh, concept. That brings me to the point, Jonathan, that this is something which we may be doing either next week before Christmas or in the week in between Christmas and New Year's. We'll have to think about it. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. With a bit of Christmas glug, as our friends in the region would call it. Anyway, let's go to Marcus. Marcus. Hello. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, hearing your, your excellent uh, talk and, well, and answering the questions. So I was wondering, um, having established, I guess, that the, the usual cast of characters are supporting, supporting Ukraine sufficiently, that you know the Nordic states and the former um, threatened or will be threatened uh, Soviet bloc or quasi bloc countries, uh, the Wanias, let's say, um, and Ovas. So, what if we? You mean the former occupied Baltic countries? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's so many. Okay. Uh, so, so we have three of them, you know. Yeah, but I'm Canadian, so this the whole map should just be one country in my brain, and they're all provinces. Yeah, but see, from uh, you're Canadian, so uh, your armed forces, as part of the NATO efforts, are in charge of uh, organizing the partnership for freedom between the NATO nations and Latvia. So Canada is in charge of Latvia, Marcus, just for your Canadian heart and soul. I gotta, well, I got to get – I better uh, get on top of that. Um so I'm wondering, <clears throat> we'll push Germany aside in the Schultz thing, because that's a whole other thing. Um, how do you crack the nut that is Spain, Greece? Well, Spain and Greece are the biggest red flags, I think, in terms of countries in Europe that I would assume have been more co cooperative and helpful, but seem to have kind of contributed something and then dropped off. And then France, but France mm. is another kettle fish. I think there is, and I, where you place um, Austria in that is also interesting because Austria doesn't have the, you know, the toad-like um, sort of uh, ability to 
to plop onto the stage and be grotesque like Orban. But if you look at Austria's actions, you know, they've contributed nothing and apparently are hosting the largest collection of, uh, you know, spies and agents since the, uh, since the Cold War. Um, so that's another doorway, as it were, for Russia to, to operate. I mean, Switzerland has a proportion of population, I believe, I might be wrong, has provided far, far more assistance to Ukraine and Austria. That now, is true. I'm willing to be picked up on that, but that's... Uh... No, it's true. It's, uh, Switzerland actually has provided more direct aid because during the winterization campaign last year, they provided immediately for an assistance package. Austria has done less. Yeah, and they're, they're a nest of, of spies and Russian influence. And I think it's a difficult question. And they're currently, and Jonathan, they are currently this evening opposing still... Um, for three days running now, the sanctions package against Russia. Of course. Of course they are. I mean, Auburn is the visible element of that, but there are many agents in Europe. And, yeah, how do you tackle that? Because if you have to have unanimous or block voting on not just the aid packages, but also Ukrainian accession into the EU, in my view, accession to NATO and the EU are critical to Ukraine's long-term survival and viability and to European protection and security. But if you need unanimity at every single stage of the accession process, uh, in, and if you also look at the rebuilding funds as well as you know the funds that are trying to go through now, it's not just Hungary that could block them. You have multiple countries that could throw a spanner in the works. Um, you'd have to fundamentally change uh, the you know how Europe uh, operates. Um, otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna have more and more and more of these roadblocks all along the way, opening opportunity for Russia to divide and wear us down and create indifference and despair. Um, we, we 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 have to somehow tackle this this problem. Otherwise, uh, you know these 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 ad hoc one off actions or little mini blocks that are forming. Um, are going to be the only way to get the thing done, but they're contrary to the idea of Europe acting as a as a community in its own interests. All righty, thank you very much, Jonathan. It has been a tremendous pleasure. I take it um, a rather um, semi-Mediterranean environment you're finding yourself in, Oxfordshire. <laughs> Um, will make it uh, absolutely less and uh, make, make you less inclined to stay outside for much longer, right? I am. Um, I need to go and thaw out, and uh, and the usual. Fortunately, I'm very close to home because I've got a rarity after COVID. I've got five pubs within a mile of my house. So, uh, oh, that's a crawl. <laughs> it is. Except two of them are across a floodplain, which is quite literally flooded at the moment. So, two of them are kind of. Uh, not not so easy to get to, but yeah, I have uh, three three pubs within easy reach. Oh, that's fantastic! Excellent. So, uh, do us a favor. Let's make sure that we can set up something for either next week or the week in between Christmas and New Year's, and um, then we shall be glad to have you back. And we'll do another segment. Uh, we've already identified at least three different topics which we can <laughs> delve on. We have. When it's a huge pleasure. I think this was this was actually the most fun so far, and. Uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to everyone's support. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It was really amazing and riveting. Thank you. Okay. All right. I'll dive back now. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Thanks, Axel. Cheerio. All righty. Bye-bye.